If you wouldn't mind, turn now with me to the book of Acts, chapter 19. We're going to be looking at the first 10 verses today. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Pardon me. How many of you have had the joyous experience of cleaning up after somebody else? It's a lot of fun, isn't it? Uh, I've often mentioned uh, my many years in food service from the uh, pulpit up here, and I've also mentioned many times that I'm something of a neat freak, Uh, And those OCD tendencies, so far as I still have them, came from my time at Penn State because contrary to all expectations, when I got there, there's never been a cleaner kitchen in the world than the one at Pollock Dining Commons under manager Jim Hopi. Uh, That guy was like the food safety Nazi, and every assistant manager was just like him, really. And so, and and all the full-time employees in the kitchen, with that exception, were uh, certified by the National Sanitation Foundation. So you could literally eat off of almost any surface in the building. So cleaning up became my habit and my mantra and and a little bit of a borderline obsession, an obsession that has now been whittled down by 15 years of fatherhood and a decade in a deli that didn't have the same standards. So I still have the ability to compulsively clean at times, but after a while you tend to feel like the author of Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, everything is vanity. (laughs) And uh, eventually you prefer to just sit back and forget about it and drink a beer instead, which is probably a healthier mindset anyway. Uh, But actually what first started to overcome my obsession with, with cleanliness was not fatherhood, but actually working in the Penn State dorm rooms because there wasn't enough work during the summer at Penn State, so most of the kitchen employees were given the option of working in student housing. And this is a job I would not repeat for bags full of money uh, because while the kitchens were always busy, they were clean and they were sanitized, they were organized. The dorms were another matter entirely. Every college student was supposed to clean their room before moving out. That was the idea, right? So as a student, I did this every year, afraid of getting in trouble for leaving so much as a piece of tape on one of the walls, right? And little did I realize that I was the only one trying. And 
those rooms in every building should probably have been condemned every summer. They were disgusting dens of chaos and, and filth and mold and disorder. And they left tons of stuff behind, and you couldn't throw any of it away. You had to bag it and tag it just in case they called about, you know, asking about that dirty sweater they left under the bed. And, you know, you begin to realize there's nothing worse than cleaning up somebody else's mess. Because you don't really know how it happened, and you don't really want to know. Other people's messes are like the worst. Uh, One of my favorite movies is The Odd Couple with Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon. Felix is, is Lemon's character. He's a compulsive cleaner, and there's a great scene where Oscar gets so mad at Felix, he takes his plate of spaghetti, well, linguine, and he, and he throws it against the wall and shatters it there, right? And Felix says, well, I'm not cleaning that up. That's your mess. And Oscar looks at it and says, I like it. And Felix gets all fidgy. He's like, you, you'd really leave it there, wouldn't you? And you'd leave it till it got all brown and moldy. Oh, it's disgusting. I'm going to go clean it up. And at that point, Oscar starts threatening him, and it's a very funny scene. But Paul is in cleanup mode a little bit today. And ministry, just like other professions, needs at least some OCD types, people who can clean up the chaos that's left behind by others, because not everybody is a clean worker, and that's okay. Some of the most effective workers in the world make the biggest messes. Now, for example, like Alyssa, she is the finest baker in my house. She works miracles in that kitchen. But miracles come at the cost of a mess, right, Liz? And you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs, and apparently you can't make a cake without using all of the whisks and all of the pans and everything else in the kitchen that you can find. It is now Alyssa's dream to move out and have a kitchen where no one will yell at her about the dishes. Soon enough, kiddo. These these days are coming. You're going to miss this one day, you know. Um, But Apollos was also kind of a mess maker in the best sense of the term. What Alyssa is in the kitchen, Apollos was at Ephesus. He rocked that place, right? He brought star power. He was super charismatic. And as a disciple of John the Baptist, he had a prophetic streak and an evangelistic fervor. But he left a little bit of a mess. Uh, So Paul swoops in to clean up. Or at least that's what we kind of speculated at Bible study this week when we were talking about it. Because you'll remember Apollos we were reading last week, he, he kind of came out of the blue, right? He, he has no connection to Paul's missions agency in Antioch, right? Uh, he just appears from Alexandria. He, he walks into Ephesus, and he takes the place by storm. And meanwhile, Paul's plodding his way slowly through Galatia. He knows nothing about this. Uh, he hasn't even heard of Apollos, as far as we know. But his goal, his ultimate goal, is he's, he's going to finally make it to Ephesus, which is the capital of the province of Asia. And this will be a crowning moment for him. It's where he's wanted to go for years. Uh, and he had started to work there uh, a while back when he was traveling. He stopped there briefly, and he spoke once in the synagogue. And he's eager to get back there and lay more of a groundwork on that small foundation. And only now, here in Acts 19... On his third missionary journey, Paul's finally getting his chance, and little does he expect that some guy named Apollos had already whipped through here and is already in Paul's other stomping grounds in Corinth. So what do we see here? It says, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. So Paul walks the long, hard way to get to Ephesus, only to find that Apollos had already kind of burned over this ground. And your pew Bibles, the ESV, uh, says he came by the inland route. The literal translation is that he took the upper parts, meaning he took the high road. He went over the mountains. 
as opposed to taking the easy way by sea, which is the way he did this last time. So after a long, arduous journey of strengthening the church all over Anatolia, he finally reaches Ephesus, and he finds a small band of disciples is already there. And it's not recorded for us here what he thought of Apollos, uh, but we realize now, you know, in retrospect later, that in 1 Corinthians, he ultimately bears Apollos no ill will about any of this stuff. And we read last week that, you know, Paul's attitude was basically, we're all working for the same company, right? We just have slightly different job titles. Apollos has his role. Uh, apparently, he's the revivalist preacher. He speaks beautifully, and he effectively refutes the Jewish opposition to the gospel. So his role was walking into the synagogue and sort of dressing down his fellow Jews for rejecting Jesus and, and, and calling them to repentance like John did. And it's a popular theory that, that Apollos may have been the author of the book of Hebrews because Hebrews is essentially, that, that basically that it's one of his sermons. Uh, we can't know that for sure, but the reason people speculate it is that Hebrews is so eloquent and it's so beautifully stated an argument for Jesus being the Christ. And that was apparently Apollos forte as the final verse of uh, the previous chapter says, that he makes these cases powerfully, publicly, and he uses scripture to do it. And we don't get the impression uh, that Apollos is really much of a church organizer, right? That's not his strength. He, he sort of sets the fire and then he moves on. So here is Paul today to pick up the pieces, just like that tune by Average White Band, right? And as Dave Green observed this morning, the church couldn't survive if every Christian was an evangelist, right? Uh, if every Christian was an Apollos, it would be chaos. But it's not entirely chaos here in Ephesus. There are some disciples, and, and, and that wasn't true when Paul visited briefly before, right? And, and on that visit, the first time Paul was here, he had spoken in the synagogue, and they had expressed sincere interest. They wanted to hear more. But Paul didn't stay, so this handful of disciples is kind of a pleasant surprise, and I don't think they were the only disciples in Ephesus, uh, because we know that Priscilla and Aquila, they're, they're still here too, presumably, and we kind of gather from the last chapter that they've been keeping a kind of low profile. They're not so much church planners or evangelists, they're, they're just quiet missionaries, quietly evangelizing their fellow Jews every Sabbath. And we know they were in the synagogue when Apollo showed up, so it's reasonable to assume they were there pretty regularly. Uh, they probably make a habit of inviting people to their home and sharing the gospel and the story of Jesus, but they're not necessarily church organizers any more than Apollos was. Uh, and I also gather there were other Christians there because Luke tells us that some of the brothers in Ephesus wrote to the brothers in Achaia instructing them to welcome Apollos. That could be these same disciples. That's not really very clear, though. At the very least, we can say that, that Paul has found some disciples here at Ephesus, and they're not his. Meaning, these guys are disciples, but they're not disciples of Jesus on Paul's account. You know, it's like finding cash in your bank account when, uh, when they, they sent you the stimulus money or something. You're like, where did that come from? And the answer is, it came from your great-great-grandchildren who will be paying this for years to come. The magic... <laughs> The magic is called inflation, and the cash is just a mirage. But in Paul's case, see, uh, these disciples are real, and, and they had come from somewhere, and he didn't evangelize them on his last stop at Ephesus, and he never officially planted a church in Ephesus. So what's with these guys? Where did they come from? And the simplest explanation is that these guys are products of Apollos' brief ministry there. They had heard him and been moved to follow Jesus in a sense. However, it becomes apparent that they had never heard Apollos after Priscilla and Aquila had got a hold of him. 
So they had heard the abbreviated version of the story, the part that ends before Pentecost, the part that hadn't been corrected yet. I mean, you'll remember, Apollos' ministry in Ephesus was very limited. I mean, it was like a sermon or two in the synagogue. Priscilla and Aquila straighten him out as soon as they hear him. And, you know, he didn't spend long preaching the incomplete story, uh, but it's a testament to his power as a speaker that some people caught fire for Jesus even without the Pentecost part included. But we have no indication of how much longer he stayed in Ephesus. It doesn't seem to be very long. The impression you get is that it was always his intention to go to Corinth and that he was just passing through Ephesus, much like Paul did earlier going the opposite way when he was going to Antioch. And it's providential that he landed there. It's not a mistake that God had lined this up so that Priscilla and Aquila are there to intercept him and set him straight before he gets to Achaia. He he basically goes as a missionary of this fledgling little Ephesian church. Uh, But just like Paul's brief visit had created a small movement, including these brothers who sent Apollos on his way, and of which Priscilla and Aquila are like unofficial team leaders, it seems that Apollos' speech in the synagogue have resulted in a handful of disciples. And these are guys who are going to need the same talk that Priscilla and Aquila had to give to Apollos last week. They just haven't had a chance to hear it yet, and they missed the rest of the story because now Apollos, he left town. He's gone. So who's going to straighten these guys out? Looks like a job for Paul. So now Paul shows up by land this time, and and he meets these guys who are talking about Jesus. And, And you can almost picture him going into Ephesus and walking up to the first crowd he sees in Ephesus the way he does, and he starts grabbing guys on the sidewalk and talking to, you know, to whoever will listen and telling them, you guys need to be, repent and be baptized. And you know, suddenly a couple guys in the crowd come up and say, yeah, you tell him. You must be with that guy Apollos. And Paul's like, who? <laughs> and you know, it had to be somewhat encouraging, a bit surprising, but it, it seems like something about their initial conversation sets off some sort of alarms for him. Uh, Paul realizes, much like Priscilla and Aquila did last week, that something is off. And so Paul asks a series of questions so he can better diagnose the situation. So it says, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. Ah, so now Paul knows what's up. These guys are still on the John the Baptist bandwagon, which was a great bandwagon, by the way, but it's kind of obsolete. It's about 20 years out of date at this point, right? Like my flip phone, and my van, and my laptop, and most of my wardrobe, actually, come to think of it. I mean, we still watch movies on VHS in my house, so I I can relate to these guys and where they're coming from, but being a John the Baptist fan at this point really is like wearing a Grateful Dead t-shirt or an I Like Ike button. I mean, it's retro, it's cool and everything, guys, right? But it doesn't really make much sense at this point in time. There was a time early in Jesus' ministry when he and John the Baptist were working the same areas, and they both had followings, and both of them were baptizing people. And Jesus had himself been baptized by John before starting his ministry in the first place. Yet, even though John the Baptist had come to point people to Jesus, he retained his own groupies for a while, right? Uh, When he was on death row, we read that he, he sent his disciples, John sent his disciples, to ask Jesus if he was really the promised one. Uh, which shows even the greatest men have doubts at times. But my only point is that John the Baptist had his own followers right up to the end of his life. But now, after the resurrection, 
after the ascension, after Pentecost, who remains a John the Baptist groupie? It's like wearing bell-bottoms. You know, that had its day. Let it go. And we can laugh about it, but, you, you know, you see this in ministry a good bit, actually. I mean, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. I mean, he's been dead for a couple of years and retired for, like, decades, right? But, you know, his, his name still carries on there. Where you got, like, Oral Roberts or uh, Moody Bible Institute, Bob Jones University, I mean, like, who remembers these guys, right? These names feel like nostalgia for the good old days, and no one would say these names feel contemporary, right? They feel like a bygone era a little bit. And, and similar, these, these guys are like throwbacks at this point. They're not wrong. John the Baptist was pretty great. It just feels like they're preaching about the good old days. The baptism of John? He's been dead 25 years. Where are you guys getting this from? Well, well this guy Apollos was here, see? Oh... So Paul kind of maybe rolls his eyes and starts trying to clean things up. He says, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. Now, you have to pause a moment and kind of ask yourself, what's the big deal here, right? I mean, these guys, they are disciples, according to Luke. That's what he calls them. Uh, They've been baptized for repentance, right? I mean, isn't that close enough? I mean, is Paul just trying to upstage Apollo at this, Apollos at this point? You know, if they've said they're sorry for their sins, they've showed the outward signs of repentance, what else do they really need at this point? And I'm sure, like Apollos, these guys have heard of Jesus, right? But what maybe they don't realize is that Jesus is not just an ally of John the Baptist. He's the entire point of John the Baptist's ministry. And without Jesus, John the Baptist's entire life work made no sense. That's why John sent his disciples to ask what he did from death row. Because if Jesus wasn't the promised one, even he knew that his ministry was meaningless. He wanted to know that it had been worth it. And Paul is saying emphatically, much as Jesus had the answer, yes. It was always about Jesus. And honestly, John would probably be embarrassed if he were still following him ahead of Jesus at this point. Now, apparently, Paul's reasoning makes sense to them, and they end up eating up really everything Paul is is spitting at them here, right? It says, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. They were about 12 men in all. A couple observations here. Uh, One is how easily the message of John the Baptist and the message of Jesus are ultimately harmonized. Their messages are not hostile to one another. John the Baptist was a great man. Jesus said so himself in Matthew 11, 11. He says, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's high praise coming from the Son of God. But never have two bigger personalities walked the earth together and yet gotten on so well as they did. So it's no wonder John's disciples are so easily persuaded to take the next step and and join the Jesus bandwagon. Now, a strange thing happens here because Luke seems to claim these guys were rebaptized. And I I say that's strange because, you know, we have no indication that Jesus ever rebaptized any of John's disciples. So this seems like it should be unnecessary. And I've always taken it that there must be a distinction, therefore, between John's baptism and what we do now. 
Calvin, however, in his commentary on this passage, disputes that. And I felt like, well, who am I to dispute with Calvin? He claims that the baptisms are the same and that Luke is not saying there was a second water baptism here, but rather Luke is referring to the baptism of the Holy Spirit and that this is supported by the fact that the water is not explicitly mentioned and also the fact that it says they received the Holy Spirit not upon the water baptism, but upon Paul laying his hands on them. I think Calvin's take is defensible, but it's not entirely obvious on a reading, is it? It does seem that John's baptism of repentance is connected to our baptism. We do baptize older believers, right? We'll baptize anybody upon repentance, and therefore we are still, in a sense, following John the Baptist's model and formula. But the variant seems to be, I think, that our baptism is the specifically Trinitarian baptism that Jesus commanded in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And while our baptism uses the same mode, we both use water, right? We use water just like John did, but it seems to me that after Pentecost, it's grown in power. The water symbolizes even more than it used to. But I think it's a change not so much in substance, but in splendor. Think about this. Out of every baptism that John the Baptist ever did, the only time that we know the Holy Spirit descended on the guy getting washed was when Jesus stepped into the Jordan. And now, since Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descends on all the elect who are baptized. It's no longer exclusive to Jesus. He came and died and rose again so that he could share the wealth. The heart of the gospel can be summarized in a very simple formula, and that's that we get everything that Jesus gets. We get the better baptism. We get to be called God's children. We will be raised like him. We will live forever with him. We will be glorified with him. We get to reign with him. And even now, the same power that resided on him resides in us. This is really cool. But it makes you wonder, what does it actually mean to receive the Holy Spirit? Because these guys spoke in new tongues and they prophesied, but that's not the norm. Tongues and prophecy are not the only way the Spirit displays his power. But it would certainly make it a little easier to see, wouldn't it? A little more tangible. Now, we're good Presbyterians, mostly here, which ironically means we don't believe anyone is inherently good, so good Presbyterians are by definition an oxymoron, right? We're, we're, we're bad people who know God needed to change us. Um, We know that God is sovereign over salvation from beginning to end. And so we know that the Spirit was at work in these 12 guys before Paul ever got there. He's not uninvolved. Just as we know that the Spirit was at work in the original 12 in the upper room back in chapter 1. But since Pentecost, the Spirit dwells in us in a new way. He's always been active and at work, but as Christian believers, he resides in you in a way that is completely unprecedented. No one before Pentecost has ever experienced what you have. Jesus said that when the Holy Spirit came, we would receive power. 
The power that resides in you is the same that raised him from the dead. That's like nothing else. What religion promises anything like that? I don't know that I can fully wrap my head around these things, and I don't think these guys understood it either. They understood the power of John's ministry, which means that by extension they understood the power of Jesus' teaching. They understood their sin. They understood they needed to repent. But how can you explain the Holy Spirit to those who haven't experienced it? Even those who really respect Jesus and think he's a great guy. People who are willing to follow his great example or imitate his piety, but who try to do so on their own power. The words that stand out most in this passage are right there in verse 2. It's what struck me the most. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, may I be so bold as to suggest that this is the plight of many of our neighbors who fully consider themselves to be disciples of Jesus. And they may have heard the phrase Holy Spirit, but I would contend that many, honestly, can't go much further than that. I think that the Holy Spirit is probably one of the hardest things to understand, and, I, and it's one of the hardest things to believe about the gospel. And I say that because it's hard even for us as believers to accept it. We are so frail and we screw up all the time. We we sin against our wives, we sin against our children, we sin against our parents, we struggle to pray, we make the same mistakes over and over again. So where is this power that's dwelling in us? And how can we explain it to others when so much of the time it seems like we barely experience it ourselves? How many believers could make pretty much the same statement that these disciples did? How sad. How horrifying to try to live out the gospel without the Holy Spirit's help. This was a hard week for me. It was not the most hard week that ever happened to me or anything like that, and I can't even point to anything obvious about it. I was just stressed, pretty much, for the last seven days. And I fell behind in my writing, and I ended up preparing most of this message after 6 p.m. last night. I'm underslept, and I'm kind of in a bad mood. (laughs) And my wife, at one point, she reminded me, as she often does, she says, Matt, preach to yourself first. And so she took the trouble to compile for me a a list of verses about the Holy Spirit and how Jesus says, for, for instance, in John 14, he dwells in you, that he will be with you, that he will not leave us as orphans. Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would teach us all things and that he would help us to remember the things that Jesus said. In John 15, verse 26, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit our helper. The NIV translates the same word as advocate. The King James calls him our comforter. And I was weak on Friday night. And Georgia said to me, you need a helper. Boy, was she right. 
And he did help me. It's only by the power of the Spirit any of these sermons ever get written. But on weeks like this, he makes it a little more obvious. I didn't get the gifts of tongues. I got the gift of making it through to this morning. And sometimes that's enough. John 16, 14, Jesus says of the Holy Spirit, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And that's what he did this week. He just used Georgia as an agent. He does that a lot. He has the right. He dwells in her, too. And I think it's actually providential that she couldn't be here today because it makes me have to rely on his power a little more. And thankfully, the power that dwells in us is not conditional. His power is not weak just because we feel weak. On the contrary, as God tells Paul to say, Paul says in, in, that God tells him in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, that his power is made perfect in weakness. So Friday night, I was so flustered and so tired, and I was so mad at myself over something stupid that I did that set us behind. And Georgia asked me if I wanted to pray, and I said to her, I don't even want to talk right now. And when I don't want to talk, what am I supposed to say to God? Now, later that night, I found a few words to mumble when we prayed together, and, and God answered them, even though my attitude was kind of lousy. Paul says in Romans eight twenty six, The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I can't tell you how often I yell at my kids for making whiny noises, right? And they can be high-pitched and they can be low-pitched. One thing they have in common is they're almost completely incomprehensible, right? One might even call them groanings. And yet Paul says the Spirit groans for us on our behalf. And God listens. The Spirit speaks for you when you can't even get words out. Now, that sure looks a lot like weakness, but that's where the Spirit shines brightest. Who wouldn't want that kind of power then? And yet these guys hadn't even heard of it. These disciples in Ephesus had no idea what they were missing. Their faith was accurate, but it was incomplete. And you begin to see now why Paul was so eager to help them and to complete the picture. It's not about just getting them to think right. Who would want to face the world without the Holy Spirit? We don't have to understand him to experience him because he is Christ and Christ is ours. Now we draw to the end of this passage and I'm just going to cover these last couple of verses very quickly. We see that receiving the Spirit does not change everything. It says he entered the synagogue, Paul did, for three months, spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with them, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of God, both Jews and Greeks. Now remember, this was the same synagogue that welcomed Paul so warmly on his first visit, the same synagogue that gave Apollos a platform to speak a short while ago, but within three months, Paul and his spirit-filled followers were shouted down and kicked out. 
and they had to leave their traditional house of prayer and go rent space from Tyrannus down the road, a guy we know nothing of and who was lost to history. Call it the Ephesian equivalent of the Girl Scout building. Those of you who have been here long enough, you know. But this proves once again that the building is not the important part. The important part is what, that Paul stays for two years, even longer that he stayed in Corinth, and by the power of the Spirit, Luke's testimony is that within 24 months, everyone in Asia had heard about Jesus, at least. The Gentiles and even the Jews who had kicked them out, everybody has at least heard about Jesus. This province Paul has been so eager to reach is now saturated with the word of God, not because the hardships ended, but because the power dwelling in Paul and in these 12 new disciples was made perfect in weakness. That's the difference the Spirit makes. It was not about upstaging Apollos. It's about giving these guys power that they're going to need to live life as a disciple of Christ. There are no unfunded mandates in the kingdom. God gives you the ends. He also gives you the means. That's the power Paul wanted for these guys. What's important is not the water, but the indwelling power that it symbolizes. And that's what flowed from Paul's hands into these 12 and that flows through us by our spiritual baptism into Christ. The difference between true Christians and those who are mere Jesus sympathizers is the power of the Holy Spirit in us. The power is real. In Christ, it is ours, and you don't want to face life without it. And once you've experienced this power, you'll never want to go back. It's like learning to fly. Why would you go back to walking? One last note is that, you know, when when Jesus was baptized, not only did the Spirit descend, uh, the Father actually says in that moment, you are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. Brothers and sisters, those words are now for us. That's the power in us. And when it least looks like it and least feels like it, and when he is most needed, that is where his power is going to be made perfect. And your heavenly Father looks down and says, I am pleased with you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you that you so generously give us all things in Christ, Lord, that all of his riches, Lord, are ours. Lord, including the very power that raised him from the dead. And Lord, we thank you that the power of the spirit is not dependent on our own strength, Lord, but is in fact magnified in our weakness. That the smaller we are, the bigger you get. Lord, help us to believe that, to walk in faith and to be encouraged this week as we face whatever challenges may come our way. We pray that you would be glorified, that your son's name would be magnified among our neighbors. Lord, in our workplace, wherever we go. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.